brought to you by Swamp Stories. When you tune into the show, you'll hear not just about the problems facing our democracy, you'll also hear about possible solutions. From slush funds in Congress and dark money to gerrymandering and foreign interference in our elections, our network partner podcast, Swamp Stories, shines a light on the swampiest practices in D.C. that repulse Democrats and Republicans alike. Listen to leading conservative and liberal elected leaders, activists, and experts on bipartisan solutions to fix America's broken political system. Find Swamp Stories on iTunes, Spotify, or at swampstories.org. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Jess Kutch. She's the co-founder and co-executive director of coworker.org, a lab for workers to experiment with power building strategies and win meaningful changes in the 21st century economy. Since its founding in 2013, Coworker.org has catalyzed the growth of global independent employee networks, advancing wins like paid parental leave benefits at Netflix, scheduling a reform at Starbucks, and wage increases for workers at a southern restaurant chain. We've had many references this season to workers and labor union organizing, and this episode answers the question of how non-union workers are currently mobilizing to build and hold power in our economy. When people are motivated to come together to take real risk to try to improve their jobs, there's usually like a commitment to their workplaces, to their companies, to each other, that is greater than in workplaces where that's not happening. And I think people often think, well, if you're trying to unionize, you must have a really bad workplace. But that's often not true. And I wish we understood workplace organizing as really celebrating that interconnectedness and trying to work together to improve our jobs and our work lives. We discuss the importance of your workplace as a conduit to practice democracy, the need to talk to each other about what you encounter at work, and the role of technology for successful workplace organizing. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mila. Glad to be here. So to start, I thought we would talk about Coworker.org. What is Coworker.org? Sure. So Coworker is really two organizations in one. First, we're a platform for workplace organizing that more than half a million people have used. So we offer workers digital tools, how-to guides, things like media pitching support and peer networks for people to effectively mobilize their coworkers around any issue that matters to them. But the second part of the organization is really more of a thinking organization. We're really a laboratory for workers to experiment with power building strategies in our fast changing economy. So we invest in worker led innovation and leadership development to see if there are models that can be developed alongside traditional trade union models that allow workers to build and hold power in our economy. What's the best example of a successful campaign that you've helped with coworker.org? So over the years, our largest network of workers is at Starbucks. And we have more than 50,000 current and former Starbucks baristas who've taken action on the platform 
It started back in 2014 when a young barista in Atlanta, Georgia, started a campaign on our platform asking for the company to end its ban on visible tattoos. At the time, employees at Starbucks were forbidden from showing any of the tattoos on their you know, arms. And she was able to mobilize more than 10,000 coworkers around the world and generate you know, international media attention on her campaign. After about six weeks, Starbucks announced that it was ending that policy and it would allow workers to display their tattoos. From there, people got a sense of what was possible. And we saw over the following years, many campaigns launch and succeed on the platform at Starbucks. Everything from paid sick leave to the most recent campaign at Starbucks during the coronavirus pandemic, asking the company to close its stores with pay, which it did at the end of March for a period of time. It sort of proves this theory of what starts with a campaign around tattoos, which might seem not of primary importance when it comes to worker well-being, you know, over time, the network that forms around these successive campaigns results in a group of workers holding power that's capable of asking an employer to shut down stores with pay during a global health crisis. That is one of the best examples of what's possible when you build digital infrastructure to support worker organizing. So... How does this kind of labor organizing differ from the way that we understand classic organizing, meaning labor unions and collective bargaining? I see the the activity that's happening on coworker.org by workers themselves as part of a larger labor movement. I think we sit alongside labor institutions and other organizations, regulatory institutions that are there to protect workers to advocate for worker well-being and to improve working conditions and wages. Labor unions in the United States exist within the framework that was set by the National Labor Relations Act. You know, 1930s law codified like what a labor union is. But prior to that, what a union was was really up to workers to define. And you saw a period of 100 years of experimentation of workers doing all kinds of creative things to build power and to influence employers and change their working conditions. So I see ourselves as part of that broader tradition of labor organizing and movement building, really being a place for people to experiment with strategies. We're engaged with a group of workers who work for the company called Shipped, the sort of delivery shopping service at Target. They're kind of confronting what it means to be workers who report to algorithms, really. And their pay is determined by these black box algorithms that they can't see into. So to be able to confront that kind of technological power as workers, they need to figure out what the algorithm is actually doing with their wages and how it's determining what they are paid. We're helping them crowdsource information from thousands of ship shoppers about what their compensation is to try to piece together what the algorithm is, you know, and to be able to make demands of the employer based on that information. Being a home for workers to come and say, this is an experiment we want to run where we want to try to solve this problem. And if we have the resources and the capacity to do it, we'll try to do it. That's an important piece of our work. 
Fascinating. I love that you're trying to crowdsource to crack the algorithm. Uh, that's very difficult to do. <laughs> I mean, the whole point is that it's opaque. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's intentionally so, designed that way. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. But I think this goes to the way that workers are treated and sort of how these workers are essentially interacting with a box that somehow calculates their wages. And it almost feels like Frankly, the machine should do the the work then instead of the human. So it makes work very precarious. So in what way are low-wage jobs particularly precarious? With the gig economy, you don't even have the protections of traditional employment law. And so gig workers in particular, I think, are doing some of the most interesting organizing and experimentation and building power. It's an interesting moment to be talking about low-wage workers and precarious work you know, during a global pandemic when I think we're all kind of realizing our interconnectedness. And so you see workers at meatpacking plants who are being exposed to COVID-19 and are not being provided with proper safety equipment. Employers are just ignoring regulations. And because workers in those plants have no power, they are not able to advocate for their own needs, which has a direct impact on those local communities, right? Like those are public health crises that folks, you know, with the virus spreading in one workplace, it also means it's spreading in the community. Worker power is the matter of life and death for people. It can be. If people don't have the ability to advocate for their safety on the job where we spend a third of our adult lives, that has real consequences for you know, our own quality of life and the quality of life in our communities. How does organizing give workers power? How does it actually work in terms of the practical aspect? At Coworker, we approach that question with curiosity. The economy that we're living in is fast changing. And the ways that we built power for workers 100 years ago aren't necessarily working in today's economy. And there needs to be new models and ways and institutions that can hold that power. With the gig economy, with the rise of freelance work, I think we're at a moment where we need to reimagine what it means for workers to hold power in our economy. And I don't really think anyone knows the answer to that question. Folks are looking in different places. There's a lot of talk right now about sectoral bargaining, which is done in you know, some countries in Europe. What is sectoral bargaining? It allows workers in an entire industry or sector to come together to set standards for that entire sector. And the reason that's important is because in the United States, when workers in one company unionize, they might be at a disadvantage in their industry in terms of competitiveness if the other companies are non-union. If you raise standards for workers, raise pay, raise you know, health benefits, that cost you know, has to come out of somewhere. And so it's a competitive disadvantage for a company to be like the only company in its sector with those high standards. With sectoral bargaining, that takes that out of the equation. All employers in that sector have the same standards. And so they're not competing in the downward trend of pushing worker wages down, but instead there's a floor to that and they compete in other ways like the quality of their products. <laughs> I think we're in a moment where we need to look at the labor law that exists in the United States which is 90 years old, it's outdated, badly outdated. And it's also been chipped away for decades, right? 
and sort of imagine what it might look like for workers to come together and hold power in this current economy. What would be the first thing you would change in the labor laws, if you could, that would immediately make work better? Oh, what a good question. Some folks are thinking about right now what it could look like if workers could rapidly form their own unions. There's certain laws that govern filing for a union election. It's a pretty involved process that almost always requires the assistance of union staff. But most unions are downsizing. They do not have the same organizing capacity that they had even 10 years ago. And so when you have declining union capacity to help workers organize and surging worker interest in, in organizing, making it easier for workers to form and join unions on their own, I think is, is an appealing concept. There's a lot of ideas floating around right now. One is that there would be an opportunity once a year for workers to vote on whether they want to join a union as almost like election day. It's just a day every year where everyone in the U.S. who has a job, a W-2 job, just votes on whether they want to join a union. And then the process goes from there. If, if, if a majority of workers elect to join a union, then they would be able to bargain a contract. I'm, I'm a, basically a proponent of anything that allows more workers to have a voice. A lot of folks are interested in this idea of putting workers on corporate boards I think we just need to be in a place of experimentation. And as much as policy can support that experimentation, both at the state and federal level, the better. I mean, I think that's how we'll land on really building institutions in the long term that can hold worker power. This week, Future Hindsight is brought to you by Jordan Harbinger and his podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. If you like long form interview podcasts like ours, I encourage you to check out his show. Jordan's guests run the gamut of interesting people, and his questions are designed to entertain and inform. One of his most recent episodes features legendary astronaut Chris Hadfield. If you need a jumping off point for his show, this is a great episode to start with. I really think interviews are an excellent medium for deep learning, and Jordan's podcast has some of the best interviews around. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. I have a question about the most effective way for workers to organize and build power. What's the first thing workers should do to build power? I think it often starts with what you're immediately faced with, which is often there's a crisis that occurs in a workplace. For many people, that crisis is their health and safety amidst a global pandemic and feeling like your employer is not protecting you and providing you with the you know, safety equipment and the measures that you need to keep yourself safe and healthy. Starting a conversation about your shared you know, collective well-being and interests and how those interests maybe are not being met uh, by your current working conditions and employment and thinking together about what a solution might look like. You start to think about who the decision makers are inside a company, who has power over those decision makers, and what kind of solution 
would you like to see implemented? Getting clear on those three things can really help kind of provide you with a plan for how to get from the crisis to a better place, a solution. For some people that might look like starting a campaign on coworker.org. For others, it might look like contacting a local union office and meeting with a union organizer. And still others, you know, might decide to ask for a meeting with the CEO or the HR director. I, I think there's a number of different ways that workers are coming together and speaking out and kind of working together to come up with a solution. It sounds so basic, but it's so important, right? Talk to each other. And But I think one of the problems, of course, is that sometimes people don't want to talk to each other. They don't want to share their own information in order to aggregate their concerns. You know, like sharing your salary with people, for example. Some people really don't want to do that. I think that's changing. There is certainly a movement around salary transparency that began with people just posting what they're earning publicly or sharing with trusted networks. It's true that not everyone is going to feel comfortable talking to their coworkers. I think the magic of this moment is that it's easier than ever because of technology to do so. And there is a way to do it in which you might feel more comfortable. That is the key to being able to unlock, like actually acting together to try to influence an employer and change their working conditions. So you're talking about technology and information. You talked earlier about trying to uh, use crowdsourcing to break the algorithm of the box. How does leveling the informational playing field lead to more equity and change for the employees? In almost every workplace, there's information asymmetry between the employer, usually management, and rank-and-file workers. Being able to change that information asymmetry by sharing information with one another allows you to contextualize your own experience. So the way that this shows up often is that workers, especially when technology's in the mix, have trouble diagnosing the problem that they're confronting. At Starbucks several years ago, workers were being scheduled for closing and opening shifts. So they were having often less than eight hours in between their shifts. The company had said publicly that this wasn't happening. And yet workers were experiencing this. So we were able to crowdsource information from hundreds of Starbucks locations that showed that workers were getting scheduled for these shifts and uncover a bug in the software where the software was not recognizing that Sunday night into Monday morning was two consecutive shifts. They were counting it as a fresh week. So a really simple error that the company didn't realize was happening and that workers didn't know if, if, if their manager was just going rogue or if there was like a systemic issue. And when you can't diagnose a problem, it's impossible to propose a solution. Having information at your fingertips to be able to say, this isn't just my store location, my manager, but this is a company-wide problem. And to know the exact particulars of what workers in other places are experiencing, it allows a group of workers to name the problem and to ask for the solution. I think we're all going to be confronting the impact of technological sort of management of our work in the years to come. And it's going to require working together 
to compare notes and share information in order to advocate for ourselves under that new kind of reality. Right. Well, with the gig economy, whenever I think about it, I think it's a temporary condition. <laughs> this is uh, just maybe my fantasy, but I think that eventually it'll go away because it's so insecure and people just can't live like that. And I don't know how it can be sustainable, let's say, for another hundred years in the way that traditional industry had been. When you think about the gig economy, what are really the basic workers' rights that everybody should have? So our approach and our theory of change is that workers should have a voice in determining what their working conditions and standards in their industry should be. Where I always start is worker voice. Do workers in that industry have a voice? Do they have safe, protected mechanisms for speaking out, for organizing with one another to make demands with regard to their working conditions and wages? And... In the gig economy, they're on their own. And what we're seeing is that when workers do something as simple as post on social media, showing maybe some information about what happened with the app that they were using that day, they can be what's called deplatformed, which is they just try to log in the next day for work and they can't log in. They've been removed from the platform and they have no recourse. They have no rights. There's little that they can do and so they just lost their income and livelihood. This idea of precarity in the gig economy versus traditional employment, I don't really buy it. I, I mean, in the United States, most people are at-will employees. They can be fired at any time for no reason at all. And until we get rid of at-will employment in the United States, I think all of our jobs are pretty precarious. <laughs> the fact that employers don't need to give reason if they want to terminate your employment means that they can fire you for reasons that are technically protected, like organizing in your workplace, as long as they don't give a reason for that. And that's that's pretty precarious. I agree 100%. When I say work is precarious, I mean everybody's work is precarious. You know, just because yeah. you're not in a gig job doesn't mean your work is not precarious and yeah. anybody can lose their job at a moment's notice. When we talk about the voice of workers and sort of organizing to be heard, I feel like that's not what people think about when people think about labor organizing. What is the false narrative about labor organizing and collective bargaining? My mom, I remember when I first started working for a labor union and she kind of recoiled and it surprised me because I understood her to be a fairly progressive person who supported economic justice issues like I did. But her experience with unions coming of age in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of news on all the time about union corruption and greed. Many unions look much different today than they did in the 60s and 70s. The other thing you know, I think is just the, the us against them frame of union organizing. And this isn't just related to union organizing, but really any workplace organizing. When people are motivated to come together to take real risk to try to improve their jobs, there's usually like a commitment to their workplaces, to their companies, to each other that is greater than in workplaces where that's not happening. And I think people often think, well, if you're trying to unionize, 
you must have a really bad workplace. But that's often not true. And I wish we understood workplace organizing as really celebrating that interconnectedness and trying to work together to improve our jobs and our work lives. That makes actually a lot of sense, the way that you explained it. Basically, it's because you like working there so much, you just needed to be a little bit better. And wouldn't it be good for everybody to have maybe a little bit more pay or better scheduling? Right. Yep, exactly. So it sounds actually a lot like civic engagement in general. So what can labor organizing teach us about collective action Well, it's interesting you mentioned civic life, because I think of our work lives as an important place to practice democracy, and that the decline in union membership in the United States, which coincides with stagnation of wages, uh, I think also coincides with decline in participation in our civic life, being a union member voting on your contract and having a voice in your workplace is an important part of civic life. And I think folks learn how to work together and work through problems with each other, work through disagreement in a constructive way through that process. If we're having a broader conversation about the health of our civic life in the United States, I think we have to look at workplace democracy and, and whether there are needs to be more democratic workplaces where workers can have agency, have voice, have a role in determining their wages and working conditions. And I mean, ultimately, we spend a third of our adult lives at work. And it's wild to me that, you know, for the most part, we leave our rights as citizens at the door when we walk into our workplaces every day. It seems like a place, actually, that there should be robust protection and free speech and experimentation with truly participating in designing those workplaces in our work lives. So as an everyday person, what are two things I could be doing to advance more democracy at the workplace and more agency for workers? One thing is to start sharing information. I think when workers are talking to each other about what they're encountering, that's when real connections start to be made. And you, you can begin to contextualize your experience against those of your coworkers to sort of recognize patterns and systemic issues that need to be addressed collectively. The second thing I would say is to stay informed. So there's a lot of activity right now. Workers are staging walkouts at major companies. They're petitioning their employers. They're choosing to form and join unions. And I think being connected to the activity that's going on, learning from it, especially in your own industry, seeing what's happening. If you're facing unemployment in this moment, there's a lot of organizing going on by unemployed workers to try to improve the unemployment system and to advocate for broader policy solutions that help you know, people who are in those circumstances, which is millions, millions of Americans right now. Yeah, so many. Good advice. Here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Mm. When we started Coworker in 2013, we would get questions often from folks who would say, I don't think anyone's going to use this platform. You know, why would someone take that risk? And 
especially a non-union worker. Why would they risk their job? And at the time, you know, there wasn't a ton of evidence in the popular culture pointing to the fact that that was not the case, that people were willing to take those risks. Since 2013, we've seen an explosion in the popular culture in workplace organizing. It, it makes me incredibly hopeful. I mean, the largest worker walkout in human history occurred maybe two years ago when Google employees in offices around the world staged a walkout over their objections to how the company paid out the high-level executive to leave the company after, I believe, sexual harassment claims were made against him. You know, that walkout was organized entirely by staff on their own with no prior organizing experience using Google spreadsheets in a matter of like 48 hours. And it just, to me, is an inflection point which shows what's possible with technology and just the moment we're in around the idea of workers leveraging their power and acting collectively to challenge their employers based on decisions those, those employers are making. So I'm hopeful because it does feel like the tide is turning and we're now entering into a, a period where I think we're going to see it's going to be a, you know, a frequent feature in the business section of every newspaper uh, for as long as those are around <laughs> where you know, you'll, you'll be reading and hearing about worker organizing if we have more people engaging in workplace organizing, we're going to start to be able to see what models and institutions can be built to hold power for workers in the 21st century. And that's incredibly exciting to me. Yes, that's definitely exciting. And I agree with you that there are promising trends right now that should give us hope. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Thanks, Mila. At a time of increasing unemployment, precarity of work, whether in the gig economy or not, and uncertainty about the continued effect of the pandemic on the economy at large, we have a golden opportunity to think big about what it should mean for workers to hold power. I often feel that our conversations around labor suffers from deep cognitive dissonance. A part of us wants all workers to be paid a living wage, but when we are confronted with having to pay for it, often in the form of higher prices of consumer goods, we actually recoil. We just want everything to be cheap so we can afford it. We actually lose sight that it is the system where work is by and large insecure that entraps us and that makes us unable to afford those higher wages. Now that we're not going out, we're not spending money like we used to, and we're facing the potential re-election of a president who dodges on paying his taxes, my hope is that we can find the courage in a new administration to bring labor laws to the 21st century and to make worker organizing a powerful tool for improving worker well-being. Next week, our guest is Alice Marwick. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and faculty affiliate at the Center for Media Law and Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, as well as a faculty advisor to the Media Manipulation Project at the Data and Society Research Institute. 
I think Black Lives Matter is the epitome of what we would call hashtag activism in that it's really a native social media activist movement. The movement started when trying to bring awareness to the deaths of Black people and acts of police brutality that were not being covered by mainstream media. That social media became a platform to push these events into mainstream consciousness and to try to get people to pay attention to them. And let's be clear, this has been a long process coming. You know, these people who are involved in Black Lives Matter have been agitating for years to get these things on the national agenda as they are now. We talk about the role of social media in our current discourse to build political power, such as from hashtag activism like Black Lives Matter, and the more extensive use of social media by all politicians during this election cycle due to COVID-19. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak, and our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.